Welcome to The Pre-Work, a limited podcast series about being in a relationship with one another. Part one of this podcast focuses on the somewhat divergent ways BIPOC and white folks can prepare to go on an equity journey together, while part two tackles justice and equity, but for queer and straight folks. I'm your host, your narrator, and sometimes panelist, Crystal Cheatham, alongside Melvin Bray, who serves as our interviewer. Sometimes the difference between respecting someone or not is knowing their story. Shortly after college, I joined an activist group that made an effort to talk to administrators at conservative Christian schools. Our goal was to get the leadership to acknowledge and protect the LGBTQ students and staffers. Many of these colleges would host our group, invite us in to chat with them and their students, and then step back and say, see, there aren't any queer people here, so we don't need your help. We quickly learned that the difference between validation in their eyes was respect, and how could we earn their respect if they didn't know our stories, if they hadn't sat and shared their experiences as well. This new tactic of story sharing put a whole new spin on our work. Suddenly, we were engaging with folks who were willing to deny our queer experiences had never happened to us. We discovered that community building in this way was far more powerful than any fact sheet or seminar we could deliver. As you gain knowledge around gender and sexual orientation, the hope is you will live respectfully, in mutuality and joy, with and among people who fall all along the sexual orientation and gender continuum. Today, Melvin Bray sits with myself, Cedric Harmon of Many Voices, and Sharon Grobes, Vice President of Partner Engagement for Auburn Seminary. Hey, Crystal. Hey, Cedric. Hey, Sharon. Good to be with you again. Hey, Melvin. Melvin. Hey, Melvin. And everybody. So at the beginning of each episode, I've gotten to share one story after another about my own queer equity journey. I wonder if we could start with each of you sharing a story of your own. Uh, I was initially tempted to ask you about your coming out story, but there's a way in which straight people's interest in coming out stories can be about centering straightness. So instead, I'd rather ask you about the first time you fell in love. In particular, how did you feel, either in the moment or upon reflection, living your truth despite so much around you cajoling and demanding that you live otherwise? So this question really did, has caused me to to pause and think. Um, And so I had to figure out how I wanted to respond. So here we go. One of the things I'm very clear on is that loving relationships are essential to living. And I've been very fortunate to have been blessed with loving parents, the love of my siblings, and two long-term romantic love relationships. Now, those two relationships were similar in some ways and different in some ways. And especially for our conversation, different in a particular way, in that my first long-term loving relationship was with a woman. Uh, and it lasted during my years in college. And my second loving relationship was with a man, long-term, seven years. So experiencing the intimate confidence of one particular person who cares and supports you, who holds your heart's desires as their priority, buffers you, or at least it buffered me, against the external forces of harm. Love is the best shield against harm I've ever found. And so love encouraged me 
It strengthened my self-esteem. It caused my confidence to grow. And it helped me emotionally, mentally, and spiritually to feel an, as an enriched person, worthy and deserving of love. Mm. So that's how I really want to answer your question around the first time falling in love as a, a more adult person. Now, mm. the very first time was in second grade, with <laughs> second grade girlfriend. And all we did was hold hands and walk around the playground. But it still had the same effect. It encouraged me emotionally, spiritually, and mentally to feel confident and self-assured. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Crystal? Mm. First time I fell in love. Well, I think that um, the English language does such a disservice to that word because there are so many different ways to fall in and out of love. And, um, you know, up until my teenage years, the only way that I had ever seen that uh, really displayed out time and time again was on the te on TV, in movies, television shows, uh, you know, in, in college, it was in my the Shakespearean literature that I was reading, <laughs> where their love is so fast and so deep that they're willing to like die over it. Have mercy. <laughs> And um, I want to say that in my youth, I did date a couple boys, but um, for me, it was all very, um, I don't want to say transactional. I just, I don't want to say something that gives you the image of it being uh, without the real information of what a crush or love actually is. And so it wasn't until my master's program in uh, Culver City, uh, Los Angeles, that I fell for a woman who was older than me, beautiful Jewish woman. I like to call that kind of like the first time a queer person falls in love as like a unicorn love, because it's just, you fall so hard and you figure out how, ways to move heaven and earth so you can actually be with this person, Aww. even though it's impossible. And um, the memory of of your feelings for them just lingers and lingers and lingers. Like I still remember that. And I know that every one of us queer people has one of those, you know, when we first came out and that person was just shown that so shiny and new, but honestly, for me, it was making all of those love songs make sense. You know, all wow. of that early nineties, early two thousands, all those movies finally make sense. And I just had to, you know, alter it a little bit. It mm. wasn't a man and a woman falling in love or two teenagers. It was two women. And that's what, that's how I, I realized that the, the yarn of love can really be tangly, you know, whereas before it was this transactional, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I fell hard. Yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Sharon? Yeah, I identify with a lot of that, Crystal. And I um, lived as a lesbian for a really long time now, but my attractions have been more bisexual. And I think if I was born at a different time, a later time, I probably just wouldn't even bother with uh, an identification at all and just say queer and be done with it. But it was because like the moment in which I was 
um, brought up, like that I, I came out, those distinctions felt very important. Mm. You know, like I, I was just a little confused. So I had way back in, in uh, the fourth and the fifth grade, I had these crazy crushes on my girlfriends and I didn't have any language for it. I didn't understand it. It was just, oh, oh my gosh, just the desire to be in the presence of, I remember Kathy Bianco, my next door neighbor, who was just like, I, we had a clubhouse together and we were just absolutely inseparable. And um, she was the youngest in a big Italian family that had eight kids. And I would go over to her house and watch emergency. I'm dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> probably don't know emergency, but we would just, we would watch the show together. But what's so interesting about how sexuality works, right? It's like, we would have these, like, these huge crushes on these male figures, straight men, male figures in this television show. And yet we were living out a crush with each other and it was getting deflected on this kind of straight reality. And we just didn't have a language to make any sense of it. So I had a lot of relationships like that, that took me all the way through college. And it wasn't until really like my third year in college that I actually had my first bona fide relationship with a woman. And it actually, I was with her for four years. And I would say there was probably not a whole lot of love there. It was, it was a different kind of love, but like these, so it's just a kind of funny thing because these relationships that happened on the side that I didn't have a language for that sort of flowed between friendship and oftentimes deep, possessive, not particularly healthy feeling um, mm. um, kind of dynamics was just like, this was like this, like the story. I was dating men and then having these huge emotional crushes on women and just didn't have a language for it. So it's just sort of so this whole question about falling in love is, is a funny one to kind of think about because when you don't have a language for the relationships that you're in, sometimes it's confusing to sort of make sense of it. Indeed. I think um, one of the, you know, in an earlier episode, Cedric talked about the deep gifts of who we are and what we have to offer. And I think one of the huge gifts of, LGBTQIA folk is um, the value of friendship and the, the resistance to the toxicity of the nuclear family and, and the, the singularity of the one person that you fall in love with and stay in love with forever as the sort of model of the ways in which we are with one another. I think that one of like, we've, the, queer community is really good at eroticizing friendship <laughs> and of um of found of of creating found family and yes. um and it is an absolute gift all right there's only one term that i want to pause and tell you about before we continue it is found or chosen family now you'll hear this a lot in the lgbtq community and a chosen or found family is made up of people who have intentionally chosen to embrace, nurture, love, and support each other, regardless of blood or marriage. Isn't that beautiful? All right, let's get back to it. 
I just want to piggyback off of that. It's the this elasticity of love that maybe it's just not the shortfall of the English language. It's just the shortfall of, like you said, the, um, what did you say about the family? It was such a good word. Um, I mean, like it's, it's such a shortfall of the way that we are the binary of relationships that mm. if you uh, are a man, this is the way you experience love and it has to be romantic from a woman and that you can't mm-hmm. have all of these, this myriad of ways of actually interacting and loving people. I mean, it's, the queer experience really is a rainbow. Like, <laughs> yeah. Indeed, indeed. So let me ask you this, right? Like thinking about that rainbow and the liberation it brings. How do you feel about those who choose the opposite? who choose to to kind of maintain the kind of constricted ways of understanding themselves and understanding love and and kind of fall victim to the cajoling and the demanding to stay closeted and covered and quiet i'm i'm really deeply deeply committed to every person experiencing first of all self love yeah uh having their emotions and the messages that they send to themselves internally and the messages that they receive are messages of acceptance and affirmation and delight and joy towards themselves because that's so important. So I dare not define or demand of others that they come out, quote unquote. Yeah. I do, however, desire for everyone to be able to live authentically and to love themselves, and to celebrate themselves, and to live fully, and to thrive, and to enjoy the gifts of life, and sexuality, and romance, and eroticism, and express it in healthy ways. Uh, And to do so with respect, and with mutual experience, and in loving ways. So it starts for me with being present to the self, and loving yourself completely, and living what's true for yourself. And for many of us, living that truth is really important that we do it in a public way. And when we do it in a public way, that really does help ensure that others are safe to live in a public way as well. But not everyone's gonna choose to do that. They're not gonna choose to be publicly out. Uh, What I don't want is for persons to feel that they can't choose for fear of discrimination and condemnation. So that's my work. My work is to create a space for people to land safely should they choose to be publicly out. And that should be true for every human being without the fear of the repercussion of discrimination and condemnation and harm. Mm. I love what you just said, Cedric, and it it made me think about the conditions of inequity and how they play out around race and class and across the sort of systemic logics and that it is often not possible for people to come out. An assumption that everybody just should because like, let's say I can, is imposing a kind of supremacy logic that we just need to interrogate. So I really appreciate you calling that that question. I also love, like, I think that there's something about, something incredibly radical about a reorientation around love 
I think I've said this on another podcast in the series, but self-love, I think, has to be the center of how we do all of our work. And I think sometimes people get confused between self-love um, and self-obsession or narcissism, and there could not be more opposite. Donald Trump doesn't love himself. It's pretty clear to me. I mean, so like that is not, that sort of self-absorption is not self-love. And that there's something about like being able to find, to be able to support people find their their way into self-love that feels like that feels like an amazing reorientation um and incredibly important and I would just say like in my own story that I can look back with some like with some real sadness to the moments when I was the most closeted and oftentimes they were moments like because none the other piece is that none of our lives are just about ourselves like we if 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 we're operating in a, through a lens of self-hatred or self-abnegation, it is affecting the people around us. And I remember I was a young TA, teacher's assistant and uh, in an English department. And I was sort of kind of figuring my way to being out in this space. I was out in some places. And like, this is the other thing about coming out is that you come out in some places and not in others. And it's very jagged. And there was this young woman that was in my class that like obviously tuned into the fact that like I was lesbian and she was, and she wanted to be able to have, she wanted a mentor. And I was maybe 22, 23. And I couldn't be that to her because I was still in this like anxiety of being found out and this anxiety, just all of these feelings that it wasn't okay. And I wasn't okay. And I had, and I was in an authority position Mm. and and what it meant to be an authority was to be appropriate. And what it meant to be appropriate was to be straight. And so I couldn't be that for her. And so I would run away from her. And I think about this woman to this day, she haunts me as a person that in a moment of really deep need sought me out and I wasn't there because I was busy protecting my own closeted status. And so I just think about like the ways that all of our lives affect everybody else. My my closeted experience is so different than so many folks. And I know we all have our story to tell, but um, as soon as I knew that I was a lesbian and that was a thing, that was a thorn that I had just been trying to uncover, trying to figure out, you know, what the problem was. As soon as I knew that, and I knew it, you know, we're not talking about coming out moments, but it was just like being dunked with, um, with a bucket of cold water. And I had to tell people, and that's just the kind of person I am. Like, I want to tell you everything, you know, if I'm comfortable enough with you, I'm going to tell you all the things. And so I needed to tell my mom and I needed to tell my brothers and I needed to get on with my life because for me, it was so exciting. And yes, the fear was there, but um, it, it was not as, not as big as the fear of not being able to tell my truth. Later on, I fell in love with and started dating a woman who wasn't out. And that had to do with cultural reasons. She was an Indian woman. Her parents were from a very strict uh, religious background. And it wasn't even done that she would move out of the house before getting married, but she had figured out a way to do that uh, and live in Philadelphia. And so just the idea that she had a reason for why she couldn't come out made it very difficult 
for us to start to build a life together, to start to attend each other's uh, friend gatherings because this news might trickle out to these people. And it really became a, a callus in our relationship of there's only so much of you that I have access to only so many places that I'm allowed to go. And after a while that starts to, that starts to spill back on the wrong, the wrong people. Right. I started to feel like a burden. I started to feel like I didn't belong and I wasn't getting the attention that I needed. And that's what her actions were saying, but that's not what she meant by them. And so not being able to be open with the people that you love is such a burden. And I just feel terrible for those folks who can't see themselves there yet. Yeah. Yeah. So Melvin, both Mm -hmm. Sharon and Crystal named something that's really key to our whole conversation. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, It is unequitable to be forced to hide your authentic self. Yes. It's hugely inequitable. Yeah. This is inequity lived out on a daily basis. Yes. Which is why our work in this podcast and our work in the world is to create an environment where that is not the default reality. Yeah. That the default reality is that you are invited and welcomed to bring your full self out into the world. Yeah. That's the work that we're up to. Yeah. But we have to recognize that for so many, that is not the world in which we're living. Yeah. That's the shame of this moment. Yeah, it is. It, it, it is a shame, right? Like, because I've, I've never had to think about whether or not to share with the world who I loved, who I'm dating who I'm interested in, like, like none of those things are, are considerations. When did we um, heal, don't ask, don't tell? I mean, that was like the way exactly. that we all, and that's very recent, right? Like yes. that's the way that, yeah, it was the military, but it's just sort of the cultural assumption that that's what you just, you know, like that was the, that was the tolerant way. That was the moderate way. Yes. You know, you're not, you don't have to be expelled. That's exactly right. So let me ask you this. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, back before you knew what authentic was for you, is there anything that you've learned about yourself or you've learned about life since then that if you had known then, you would have been compelled to risk your own authenticity, your own honesty, your sooner. I would have told myself, don't date that one woman because your whole life will go up in flames. Don't date Scorpio. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. <laughs> right off the bat. <laughs> you know, I wish, I wish that I knew how much my family really loved me. Because there are well-deserved horror stories about families uh, turning around and kicking you down. And that was just not my experience. The Cheatham's and the Browns ran to embrace me, save for a few who didn't need to be a part of my life anyway. Um, and had I known that it was just that, that it was just okay to be myself and let folks in. Oh my God, I can't even imagine 
who I would be today. I think I think I did pretty well, but um, I think Baby Crystal, Baby Crystal needed to know that her family's love was truly unconditional. So Melvin, I have um, one of my favorite, 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 favorite quotes comes from um, Tony Cade Bambara. And it's, as a culture worker who belongs to an oppressed people, my job is to make revolution irresistible. And I wish I, uh, I, I would have told my, my younger self that the power in the irresistible is that that is worth so much more than the, the power of appropriateness. And mm. I would have risked a whole lot more for the irresistible because that's where there's so much energy in that and there's so much beauty. And I just look um, right now at, you know, young trans folks, particularly young trans folks of color and like what they are willing to resist for mm-hmm. like and for the power of an irresistible revolution and how they are leading so much of the work in all the spaces and I'm just like blown away by that and like yeah. there's so much power in just being able to like to be yourself and to have some joy in yes. like the fabulousness of what it means to be human and mm-hmm. like that's the, and, and that that is like I think um, the power of, I wish that I had known how much an irresistible revolution is a life-giving force and how much more, how much more life-giving that is than the following the conveyors of appropriate behavior. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would stack the joy of a gay pride parade up against the dourness <laughs> of, of those who want to keep people in their place, right? Like, so Melvin, you always ask these questions that kind of invite me to go back and relive some things. <laughs> and hopefully um, they're not bad things. No, no, no. They just invite me. And so I accept the invitation. So I appreciate it. So this, this brings up to me a, a, a memory of, my, I think it was freshman or sophomore year in high school. And I was in a chorus choir in my high school and I was in choir, uh, choir rehearsal. And one of my fellow students said to me, I have a question for you, Cedric. Why do you keep hanging around? And I'll call him Joe. Why do you keep hanging around Joe? Notice that you're friends with Joe and Joe is gay. Like, why do you keep hanging around him? Mm. And I said, well, because you just said he's my friend. But I understood the underlying question in the question. Yeah. So I took that question with me. And later in the day, I saw Joe and we were walking through the gymnasium. And so I turned to Joe and I said, are you gay? And Joe who was a senior, turned to me and said, so Cedric, if I am, does it make a difference? Hmm. And I said, no, you're my friend. He said, okay. And we continued to walk on where we were going. That exchange 
meant the world to a young freshman in high school that there was someone who did not run away from mm. the accusation. Yeah. And that I recognize this is my friend and I want the friendship, but I'm gonna ask the question cause it's being posed to me. And we had a very normal kind of just exchange of ideas and we went on. I've carried that story with me the rest of my life. Yeah. Cause what it said is how does this make a huge difference in our friendship with one another. And so this has led me to this ongoing work throughout the rest of my life where I understand difference is not deficient in any way. Difference mm -hmm. is the reality of our lives. It is the lived experience of all of us. And when you embrace difference and don't run from it and just say it is what it is, you can actually have a wonderful life with other human beings. So young Cedric had that experience, but young Cedric also had the experience, and I go back to the first question. My parents loved me. I knew that they loved me. It was unconditional, total, they loved me. So me being me is who they loved. So when it came to the, sharing with them more and more about my life, it came from my ability to rest in the fact that they loved me, that they loved me, all of me. And so I then can share that in the world. Uh, and that's the, that's the important part of this work and the important part of this journey towards equality and equity and liberation is that everyone can experience that as opposed to experiencing harm and dismissal and denial and condemnation. You know, Melvin, I was thinking, um... My partner's mother said to me at one point, um, she's been dead for a while now, but she said, love is thicker than, or wait, blood is thicker than water. And I remember just rebelling against that. And it just felt, it just felt in my bones as completely, I hated that. I don't know. It was like really deep for me. Uh, I loved her deeply. Um, but that expression just sat, it sat with me in a really bad place. And I think that Part of that is because I think we should be doing a whole lot more to be chosen family to one another. And I think we don't have a good language for what it means to love um, our friends and uh, yeah, our friend, like, like to be able to really to see the people that are in our lives as worthy of the deepest kind of love. And to and to open up to that possibility, um, mm -hmm. I think that there's. I was really quite involved in the marriage equality work, and it was it was transformative and very important to me. Um, and there's some real limitations around that because there's this notion of like the way that we prioritize the nuclear family is, I think, is doing some real harm. And I think that I think about some of my closest friendships with people that are not partnered and people that have chosen all kinds of different life or have just been unlucky in love, like, right? Like that that's just the thing that happens. And they are family and they are not less deserving or less lovable or less or less irresistible than anybody else and it's like there's a way of the way that we segment people in terms of 
kind of appropriate notions of family and um, yeah, family and and relationships is just I think it's a real problem, and I I think that you know we we need to stop that. We need to start like really interrogating how we love um, and who we love, and and not be so close down about who's deserving and who's not like in families that are toxic like, you know like i like i love the work that um cedric and crystal are about it's really about being chosen families to people that may not have that in their own family what's more beautiful than that i just want to say that the um nuclear family is a tool of Christian supremacy, um, because it allows for the patriarchy to always be in charge at the top, to always say, I make the money, so I have the power. And then comes the woman who is just there to take care of the children and keep everybody that way. And honestly, the nuclear family is what the American dream has been built on, you know? And so there are systems in place to keep folks dreaming that way. And I think Hollywood is just one way that, that, that has been portrayed. And we've seen it in advertising since, since uh, for, you know, for the last century, that's all that we've seen in advertising is the hope of this, you know, nuclear family. And Sharon, I just love to hear you talk about how we need to take that down a peg because it is interfering in the ability for us to love and love freely. And when we're talking about love, we're not talking about, I mean, yes, we can talk about like this really salacious and erotic and, you know, frivolous kind of romantic love. But what, what you are talking about are unseen connections that mm -hmm. we pull away from because mm. we're afraid that they might be improper or misunderstood, but Where's the communication in that? Now, where's the, the freedom and the ability and the support for loving people in different ways? I think when we were kids, we probably had it right when we said, you know, these three people are my best friends and everybody else is just kind of my friend. And, you know, like <laughs> we don't allow ourselves to do that anymore. At some point we kind of just grow out of saying that's my best friend, but I am interested in, in that place where you, you label who's what and how somebody affects your life personally and you allow yourself to grow into that. I myself have, you know, a very, very dear friend who has helped me through this pandemic. And honestly, like our relationship has gone through several different stages. At one point we dated and then uh, they shot me down and then we became roommates, which was fantastic, but then we couldn't live with each other. And now we're just like accountability buddies for not falling into a depression during the the pandemic and i mean i my my what we have allowed ourselves to kind of fall into is not something i feel like i ever would have been able to embrace had i not first embraced my own queerness if you know what i mean there is something that just needs to be dissected more about this this queer queering relationships um, for the straight folks, because, you know, I really feel like more people should get to get to experience, you know, what it is we've discovered here. So see, you just took me to my next question, right? Like, which is, you know, like in the work that you've done over these years, 
what is it that you see that straight folk are missing out on when they try so hard to protect the status quo? This is a, uh, another one of those deeply, uh, to define family means to ask what, 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 are, what are we involved in? So what, is, what, are, what are we gaining from this? So I think for straight people, this is an invitation to examine some notions, like where we actually began this. There are some ideas that we hold that we've not really questioned. We just accepted them as so. So one of the great gifts of queer people, LGBTQI people is by very nature of our lives, we have to question just about everything. Mm. And we have to question family. So blood relatives may not be a place of safety, of support, of compassion, of empathy, of genuine love. It may not be a place where we're being cheered for and celebrated for mm -hmm. our accomplishments and achievements. Mm -hmm. So we have chosen family where we feel safe, where we feel appreciated and celebrated and loved, and our dreams are embraced and, and encouraged, and we can actually thrive. Um, the nature of our relationships. So for straight people, if the only box that you can live a fulfilled life is the nuclear family box, and that family box is toxic, violent, abusive, mm. where do you go? So the other gift that queer people give is there's a whole world of places to go in terms of having meaningful, mutually respectful, compassionate, kind, empathetic relationship. And if you're not receiving love, compassion, support, get out of that and go find that <laughs> because yeah. that will allow your life to actually flourish and grow. Yeah. Like if this pot where you are planted is not nourishing you, let's be repotted somewhere else where we can get what we need to thrive. That's one of the great gifts of imagining and understanding that all of us live out our gender, our sexuality in different ways. And that's by design and that's a wonderful gift that we have and we should all embrace it. Straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer questioning, intersex. This is the way our lives are meant to unfold. It's not unusual. And queerness is not a surprise to the divine, to spirit, or to God. Not a surprise. Not at all shocking. The divine is not shocked when you come out. <laughs> not. Not surprised. No, she is not. <laughs> I will say that I think that's what, what um, keeps homophobia and transphobia alive because in my experience of being a quote unquote straight person, it was this fear that I would then have to, like we've talked about this before, I would then have to contend with all these other ways that I can be in the world and be in relationship with folks. And it scared the living daylights out of me because it was outside of the box outside of the square that I had knitted myself into and that I was performing perfectly, you know? And if I could say anything to straight folks, it is you're missing out if you don't embrace your queer uh, community, if you don't embrace and, and queer your relationships, allow them to be what they are. Um, like everybody has said so far, it is just such a beautiful experience. It really is. I think. Um systems of white supremacy and 
patriarchy and capitalism are death dealing systems. And if you've got privilege in those systems, it, it may mean that you're lucky in terms of having some creature comforts taken care of, and that's not to be dismissed. But ultimately, it's a toxic thing. And, and having privilege and priority in those systems is deeply harmful for everybody in them. And I think about like, um, even as a, as a lesbian, I have passed most of my life as heteronormative. And when I was younger, you know, I was like sort of in the cute space, right? And so like as understood by, um, by a, uh, a, a patriarchal and white supremacist idea of what it to be cute. So I, I like, I fit the box. And that has been not a source of um, liberation, but a source of oppressive, of oppression that I've had to work with. And the way that that showed up is like, I really felt, you know, I didn't talk about this a lot, but I felt that my worth was in my sexual attractiveness. And my sexual attractiveness was understood in terms of attractiveness to men, but really this idea of patriarchy, right? And like, so I had to fit a certain kind of box. And, and when I stopped fitting that box, I no longer had any kind of value, which meant that I couldn't age. So you just look at how much money is spent in on um, um, keeping particularly women, but men too, mm -hmm. um, like, like, like just tons and tons of money that goes into keeping people artificially looking young because we're not allowed to age because if we age, then we are not sexually attractive in the ways that it's get, gotten defined for us. And so we have to like live in these artificial ways all the time to sort of keep up with this ideal because we don't see that we actually have value, that we can actually be um, active at 80 years old. Like we can like, we can have like our, who we are at whatever stage of life has vibrancy yeah. But if we're trapped in that white supremacist, patriarchal capitalist world, then our value is only defined in terms of how much we are an, um, an object of desire in that very tiny, tiny, narrow space that can only be available for people for a very short time and only a tiny portion of people at that. And so there's something about like, I, I just think like, straightness is not like it's not a good thing it's not like just like whiteness is not a good thing it's like embrace the things that are that like that that push against that construct because it's only going to keep you down it's not it's not actually liberating even if it gives you some financial comforts in at a particular moment in time yeah i think when we say straight we need to go on and say the rest of the word straight jacketed Right. Like, like, like people, Amen to that. people are trying to, I, I don't even know how the term straight even became a thing. Right. But, but really it's, it's this, it's this straight lacedness, this straight jacketedness that we're of the thing we're trying to protect. Um, we've talked a lot over these episodes about 
respect, right? How to, how to take this journey together in respect. And that got me thinking about folk who, who talk about respect, but they, they, they do it kind of in this backhanded uh, kind of keeping straightness on top, you know, supremacist mindset where, you know, they, they talk about uh, respecting, you know, don't we have, to, shouldn't we uh, respect their rights to kind of a queer antagonistic theology? So what do you say about, what do you have to say about this idea of respecting people's rights to keep their kind of hostile teachings and hostile ways of being in the world? I mean, that, that was my work with, um, with Soul Force, uh, to go around to universities that had these policies against LGBTQ, pe- LGBTQ students and staff and say, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is hurting a person, a human being on a profoundly intimate uh, level that you refuse to, to see and acknowledge. And so for those who say, you know, I have, I have a right, I wanna say, does your right incur harm on somebody else? And then should that be a right? You know, I think that is the, the, the basis of it. Yeah, that is the, that's the question. So holding a belief or an ideology or even a theology that is steeped in those things that are diminishing and hurtful and hostile and harmful and damaging and hateful and dismissive of another human being living their life. Is that a R-I-G-H-T? Is that an R-I-T-E? Is that A-L-R-I-G? Is that all right? That's not all right because you're causing harm. It's not all right. And if it's unexamined, then the invitation is to take the time to examine the impact and the effect of this belief ideology or theology. You know, there are passages that are called clobber passages for a reason. There are theologies that are called toxic, toxic theologies for a reason. They're abusive, they're harmful, they're damaging, they're they're diminishing and they're dismissive of other human beings on the basis of their sexuality or their gender, when in fact, our human sexuality and gender are constantly evolving and revealing themselves to us day by day. We're learning more and more. So how, how is it that we hold this fixed belief that does harm when the world around us is showing the, uh, the unveiling of the blessedness and the gifts of the continuum and spectrum of human sexuality and gender? So the invitation I would offer is, come on into the water. It's actually very comfortable. And yes, there will be waves in the water and there will be ripples, but come on into the water. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You said something there, Cedric, that has been something I've been teasing out in conversation with really everyone on this call for a while now, which is this like this centering of impact. I think that that, that can give us some clarity um, when we're confused. Um, and I think when you look at 
our theologies, our politics, um, the, the, the mores and traditions that we grew up in, if we ask that question, who's being impacted by this, it gives a it 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 gives us a direction to be able to challenge what we've known and to be able to actually um, right or wrong and to be and to be able to see some of the problems with a theology or a politic or what have you. Um, it's just it, it's like it's a really good way to 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 get clear and focused who's being impacted by what I'm doing. And I think I've I've grown to um, sort of distrust the language of rights in general. Like I just don't really use it that much anymore. Um, and part of that is because I think it often gets used, sometimes it gets distorted, I would say, to be about me as an individual. And I just think like that individualism is a real corrosive, a piece that's in U.S. culture that we've just got to really work against. And that if my, if, if, yeah, I may have a right to walk down the street and not wear a mask in a pandemic, but it's not about me. It's about who, when I do that, when I exercise that quote unquote right, who am I affecting? And so just be all, and so who's impacted by that move? And that's, I think, if we if we have that question in our heads, we'll get we'll start thinking more about the community and about the ways that our lives are interconnected than about my individual circumference of like the 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 declaration of rights in a very narrow kind of circumference, which is what often happens when we get into that right speech. I think we've, I think we got to get more into communal speech and we've got to start looking at who's impacted. And we look at that, it can really guide us. Oh, this is so rich. I could uh, have this conversation forever, but uh, at some point we, uh, we need to wrap up. So um, let me ask this as kind of our, our, our departing question. You know, of course we can't, prepare listeners for every single thing they might encounter on their equity journey. But we've tried to give them a heads up, right? Um, but before we wish our audience well and send them on their way, I, I wonder if there are some final words of advice or encouragement that you may want to offer. I would say if you're prepared to walk bravely into the land of queer acceptance. Give yourself some grace because you're going to make mistakes. You're gonna make mistakes, first of all, with pronouns because we all do that. You're going to make mistakes um, asking folks whether they have a wife or a partner. You're going to make mistakes when you are disciplining a young adult at church and you need to be able to give yourself the space to make the mistake, to pat yourself on the back, to ask forgiveness from the folks that you may have hurt through a microaggression. And then you need to forgive yourself and move on and try again when it comes to the language that we don't have for expressing you know, some of these things. It, it, we fear that 
we're not allowed to make mistakes. We're just supposed to know it all of, all of a sudden, all at once. We're telling you that as queer folks, we don't even know it <laughs> all together all at once. And so you are definitely not going to know it all together and all at once, but give yourself some grace to mess up and surround yourself with folks who are going to gently nudge you in the right direction. I appreciate you uh, saying that, Crystal, because uh, we haven't talked much about forgiveness, asking forgiveness, like that simple human thing of saying, I screwed up. So I kind of would like to say, similar to where we began, that yes, human sexuality and gender, gender expression and gender identity can feel like this huge mountain to climb all the way to the top and you don't even know if you're willing to take the first step. However, human sexuality, gender expression, and gender identity are true for every single human being on the planet. All of us have a sexual orientation. All of us operate and, and navigate gender and gender expression in this world. It's part of how we're made. It's part of being human. And our relationships rely upon and intersect our human sexuality, our gender expression, and our gender identity. So why wouldn't we step into this aspect, this very important aspect of our lives? So face the fear and step into it. There are opportunities to learn and grow and there are opportunities to make mistakes and recover. One of the important things for the queer community is to allow grace for people to recover when they fall. And then for the community of heterosexual identified, straight identified folks to allow yourself to stumble and fall and get back up and keep trying. So I just want to echo what, what both Crystal and Cedric said. Um, the only, I think, addition I would, I would want to make would be um, it's, a time, it's a good time to get an embodied or somatic practice in place. Um, there's a lot of really a lot of really exciting things out there on that front, what, from meditation and mindfulness to deep, even spiritual rituals that are based in body. And, the, and part of the reason for that is I think we are in real threshold moments where the in, in just about every space we're in, sexuality, gender identity, just being one of many, the old rules are not applying. The, the old ways, institutions are crumbling. There is a, there's a new spirit in the air. And it's, it's going to make all of us uncomfortable and that a lot of our work is to be able to be with discomfort, just to be able to be with that place of not having the answers, being challenged to move beyond where we think we can go and, uh, and, and not being able to be in control of, you know, we're not going to know everything. We're not going to be able to like to be able to fake it through every, every moment. We're gonna be called out and called into authenticity, which often mean, like, means that you're gonna get called out and called into embarrassment. And that we just need to be able to know ourselves a bit better and to have some space to be with those, that all that discomfort that comes out from not having the answers, not knowing. Absolutely. If I might be so bold as to add or to, foreground the fact that none of the things that were just put forward or that have been put forward throughout the time of these podcasts 
is possible by your lonesome. This work happens in community. The work of equity happens in community. So look for fellow travelers. Build that, 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 that accountability to folk who, who are making the same kinds of equity-only commitments you're making. And we might get somewhere together. Well, I think that's been another pretty good day's worth of work. Uh, and I am so glad to have been a part of it with you three lovely people. Um, this is Cedric Harmon, Crystal Cheatham, Sharon Groves, and Melvin Bray saying thank you for doing the pre-work with us. Your bags are packed. You're ready for your equity journey. And we wish you well. Please, we don't just say this performatively. Please reach out. Let us know if we can help. And we look forward to seeing you further down the road. Be good to yourselves and to others. Thanks for tuning in with us. There is a lot to think about, and so we've packed you a bag to help you in the coming days as you reflect. Consider reading Queer Hands of God, a compilation of divine stories told about queer and straight allies alike. You can also find the links in the podcast show notes or on the pre-work shelf in our Bible app. The pre-work is a product of Being in Relationship, a program of Auburn Seminary. It has been edited and produced by Crystal Cheatham from our Bible app.